Father, thank you for the hope, the living hope that is ours in and through Jesus. Thank you that when we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, you made us alive. You redeemed us. You saved us. You did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Grace. It's all grace. All your goodness, your kindness, your mercy. And thank you for visible evidences of that saving grace this morning. And Justine and Jason and Maggie. Lord, we've had a lot of baptisms lately and there's a danger in that and that is that we get used to what we saw today. May that not be the case. May we never take your grace for granted what you're doing in our church, what you're doing in people's lives. You're saving them from the depths of hell and translating them to the heights of heaven. So help us, I pray, to rejoice in what you are doing. Be with us now as we open your word. Show us the glories and the grace of Christ. In his name I pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. It is so good to be with you this morning. It is, man, I am, woo, I'm ready to preach. I hope, I hope you have your seatbelts on this morning because what we just witnessed here, praise God, amen. Praise be to God. Wow. Mark chapter three in your copies of God's word this morning, Mark chapter three, and I do wanna say just something really quickly and that is happy birthday to my wife, Joanna. Um, so thankful for her and, and I'm in trouble for doing what I just did. So pray for me. Um, it is, it is a special and unique calling to be a pastor's wife. Um, and, and I could not do what I do, what God has called me to do without Joanna doing what God has called her to do. So I love her and I'm thankful for her. And uh, she is, once again, older than I am for five months and 12 days. (laughs) And now I'm really in trouble. So let's get to the Bible, all right? Mark chapter 3 in your copies of God's Word this morning, please. Mark chapter 3. And as you're finding your place there in your Bible, I want you to know that I'm going to do something a bit different today. I'm going to preach verses 7 through 21 here. And then I'll come back next week, Lord willing, and we'll take a deeper look at verses 13 through 19 and the 12 guys that Jesus chooses to be his apostles. Because, well, how can I say this? I'm not even sure how to say this. These guys, these apostles, are not on anybody's apostolic shortlist, right? I mean, they're not movers and shakers. They're not social media influencers. They aren't somebodies. They're nobodies. Um, They're normal, everyday guys, each with their own little quirks. In fact, they're a lot like us, but that's next week. Today, we're going to talk about something that everyone in this room can identify with, something everyone in this room knows about, and that's trouble. Now, I know a lot about trouble because as a kid, that's where I lived. I lived in trouble. Just ask my parents. 
But that's not the kind of trouble that we're talking about today. We're talking about the trouble of difficulties and problems and pressures. We're talking about when trouble hits and then doesn't relent. How many of you have ever been through a time when just as you were making your way through one problem, another popped up and then another? Back to back to back. The trouble trifecta. (laughs) That's Jesus here. Right here in this text, that's what Jesus is dealing with. So let's read it, beginning in verse 7 of Mark chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also called apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they are saying he is out of his mind. This is the word of God. So trouble is what Jesus is dealing with in this text. You know, we can sometimes think that because Jesus is God, that his humanity takes a back seat to his deity, that he lives a kind of divinely privileged life, that he's somehow sovereignly sheltered from the tough stuff we face, or if he faces people trouble and family trouble, that his deity kind of shields him from feeling how we feel in that trouble. But no, none of that is true. Jesus has been there in trouble, and he has experienced trouble. He's been there, he's done that, and he has the scars to prove it. The big idea from this text is what we've already read this morning from Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. It's this. Jesus knows trouble, and so he is able to help us in our trouble. You believe that? 
Do you believe that we have a great high priest who is able to identify with us in our weaknesses, who's been tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin, and so we can come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus tastes trouble. Jesus does trouble. Jesus faces trouble so that he can help us in our trouble. Amen and amen. He is not some feelingless Savior, some distant and disconnected deity. He is God in human flesh, facing everything we face for us to become the high priest who is with us in our trouble. And the trouble that Jesus faces in this text all begins in verse 7 with people trouble. Where Jesus is walking away, he's withdrawing. He's just healed the man with the withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and the Jewish religious leaders are not happy at all with Jesus. Verse 6 tells us that the Pharisees huddle up with a group of guys they don't even like, the Herodians. And they don't like the Herodians because the Herodians are loyal to Rome. And together, this group, these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, begin devising a plan to put a stopped to all this Jesus stuff. They're going to shut him down, and they're going to do that by killing Jesus. So the scene opens with Jesus in trouble with the Pharisees. And because it isn't time yet for Jesus to die, he does what that old country song talks about. Not sure how many of you suburbanites know old country songs. But you've got to know when to hold them. Know when to fold them. You've got to know when to walk away and when to run, right? And Jesus knows when to do just that. He not only knows when to confront the Pharisees, he knows when to withdraw from them. And when we face trouble, especially people trouble, we're going to need to lean into Jesus for that kind of wisdom because as King Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 7, there's a time to keep silence and there's a time to speak. And for Jesus, this isn't a time to speak. This is a time to keep silent and to get away to the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. But notice here, he can't really get away because a great crowd is following him. Now, there's a cool little play on words here in the Greek because as Jesus is walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Mark is telling us that we have waves and waves and waves of people who are coming after Jesus, they're following after Jesus, and they're coming to Jesus. Waves and waves and waves, and they're coming from the north and the south and the east and the west. And by the way, it isn't just Jews, it's Gentiles who are coming from beyond the Jordan River, all these waves of people. And why are they coming? They're coming because of what they've heard. They've heard what Jesus can do. They've heard that Jesus can cure diseases and deliver from demons. And so they're coming to Jesus, looking for Jesus to give them their best life now. No cancer, no leprosy, no crippled up feet, no demons. 
If only we can get to Jesus, then he can make our wildest dreams come true. But that's a problem. And that's a problem because everywhere Jesus goes, people are misunderstanding his, mis- his mission. Jesus didn't just come to give people new eyes and new ears and new feet. He came to give them new hearts. He didn't just come to deal with the temporary now kind of stuff. He came to deal with the, eternally, the, the eternal and the heavenly kind of stuff. But people miss it. Jesus came to give them new hearts, a new love for God, a new faith in God. He came to die in their place. He didn't just come to be the good doctor. He came to be the one and only Savior, not just from their diseases, but from their sins. But the people don't get that, which is why these waves of crowds are turning into really a mob scene. Jesus is healing, and many commentators and theologians and scholars believe that literally in this time, around the city of Capernaum, Jesus literally wipes out diseases. Totally. There are not just hundreds who are coming here. There are thousands who are coming here. And they're turning into that mob. They're pushing and they're pulling and they're swarming just to reach out and get a touch on Jesus. And he's in real danger of being crushed. And so he says to his disciples here, guys, this is getting out of hand. Everybody's pressing in, trying to get a piece of me. So go find us a boat and be ready for a quick getaway. Now, have you ever considered that in this part of the text, in this part of the story, that Jesus doesn't need a boat to escape this danger? Let me ask you a question, all right? You have to think long and hard about this, but I think you can do it. Can Jesus walk on water? Can Jesus make other people walk on water? Does Jesus really need a boat to get away? You guys are 100%, right? Great job. Listen, Jesus is near the sea. He can walk on the water. He can make other people walk on the water. If he wants to make a James Bond kind of getaway, he can snap his fingers and instantaneously a boat will appear where there was, where there was just a moment ago no boat. But no, Jesus goes for the practical, common sense solution the human solution, and he says, guys, go find me a boat. I love that. And I love that because it tells us this, that Jesus is just as present in life's practical common sense solutions as he is in the miraculous solutions. Let me repeat that. Jesus is just as present in the practical common sense, everyday solutions as he is in the miraculous solutions. Following Jesus does not mean that we check our brains at the door while we wait on him for a miraculous solution to our problems. 
Jesus has given us, God has given us practical, everyday, common sense solutions right here in his word. For some of you right now, your action step from this sermon is to do the common sense thing and to get in the boat. Because there's somebody at work who's got eyes for you. And the temptation to give in to that attraction is about to crush you. And so I say to you this morning, get into that boat. Or maybe your boss is pressuring you to lie, to fudge some numbers, to play the game. Do the common sense thing and get in the boat. Or you're responding to life's problems and pressures through alcohol and drugs. And I say to you this morning, do the common sense thing and get into the boat. You're being tempted maybe to get even with someone who's hurt you or to cheat on that test at school. And I say to you this morning, get into that boat. Wherever it is the pressure is building, I want you to know this morning that God has provided a common sense way for you to be able to handle that temptation, that problem. He is the solution, and he has made a way of escape for you. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. God is faithful. He will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, get this, he will also provide a boat. Now, I know the text doesn't say boat, but it does say a way of escape. And some of you right here, right now, this morning, are in the middle of that temptation, and the pressure is building, and you're still waiting for God to do something miraculous when he has given you a boat. Take the boat. God is faithful. He will make a way of escape so that you can endure that temptation. By the way, this is not in my notes, so this is free. If if you've never heard the joke about the guy who's wading out a flood on his rooftop, um, asking God to do something miraculous to save his life, and then he dies because he doesn't take the boats that God sends his way. Go, Go look that up on Google. You can find it. That's the point here. For others of you, you're facing the pressures that come with success and popularity, like Jesus here. Jesus knows what it's like to be in high demand where everybody wants a piece of you. Moms, I know Mother's Day was last week, but I think this part of the text applies specifically and especially to you. You are the most popular person in your home. Did you know that? Moms, that's you. You're in high demand to help with homework, to apply Band-Aids, to get the stain out of the soccer uniform, to make a run to Oberweiss for a few scoops of the world's best ice cream. I mean, it's true of our own children, several of whom are already out of the house. And when they call home, they don't call my phone. And when I answer Joanna's phone, they're like, come on, Dad, where's Mom? Jesus understands that constant pressure of being in high demand. And he gets the temptations that also accompany success. 
I mean, it would do us all well to go back to Genesis chapter 39 and to read that and the temptations that accompanied the success of a man by the name of Joseph in Potiphar's house. When God blesses everything Joseph does. And when we read that, we read that because of that, everybody wants a piece of Joseph, including Potiphar's wife, who wants to sleep with Joseph. Listen, with success and popularity comes privilege. But with that privilege comes danger. I say this in all humility, but but over the past two years, coming from a smaller rural church to a bigger suburban church, there have been a number of new ministry opportunities that weren't previously available to me. And can I be honest with you? At first, it was kind of flattering. But that would mean time away from my wife, time away from my children, time away from this church. But it is appealing, man, to be, to be known, for people to, to want you. Not just here in Schaumburg, but around the state and even around the country. It was flattering. But then, you know, I thought to myself, I'm really the same guy I was three years ago before I ever got here, except I have a little less hair now. I mean, I've got the same wife, same kids, same car, same dog. And yet, even in pastoral ministry, perceived success opens you up to real-life pitfalls and dangers. So let's hear the warning of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, which says, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Popularity and success. Everybody wants them. But so many are unprepared for the dangers that accompany them. There have been pastors within a 20-mile radius of this church who've been caught in the trap of ministry success. Would you pray that I never would be? None of us is exempt from those dangers that come with success, especially when that success is accompanied by temptations from hell itself, like with Jesus here encountering demon trouble. Not just people trouble, but now demon trouble, because the crowd that's about to crush Jesus, and within this crowd, the demon-possessed are falling on their knees before Jesus, and they're crying out to Jesus, you are the Son of God. Now, isn't this cool? I mean, isn't this awesome that hell shows up to say, listen, Jesus, let us just... We're the only ones really in the gospel of Mark, at least until Mark chapter 8, who really for sure know who Jesus is and testify to that reality. Even the disciples don't. Isn't it cool that hell shows up to say, Jesus, you are the son of God. But no, it's not cool. It's trouble. Because they're not saying it in a worshipful kind of way. 
They're saying it in a harmful kind of way. We're going to find out later in chapter 3 here that the demon's ploy is to, is to communicate to the crowds that Jesus and the demons are on the same team. You're the son of God. Yes, you can keep that title, but everybody knows where you're getting your power from. It's from us. And this is going to play massively into the final verdict that comes when Jesus is crucified. This is trouble. It's coming in rapid-fire succession for Jesus. The people are fascinated with Jesus because he can eradicate disease. And then along come the demons, and they're playing mind games with Jesus, the same way Satan did during the temptation in the wilderness. Listen, Jesus, you're the Son of God. Look at how everybody, look at the crowds, look at the waves of people just taken with you and enthralled with you. Everybody here, listen, they would bow the knee to you right now. If you'll just be their kind of king. And when they do, everything that's rightfully yours, everything your father said that you would get as the son of God, all the glory, all the praise, all the adulation, all the worship from all the world, it'll be yours right now. And you don't even have to die. Jesus, look. Look at them all. They can't get enough of you. Look, you don't have to go to the cross. And by the way, Jesus, you know that right now, right over there, the Pharisees and the Herodians are right now conspiring to kill you. So come on, Jesus. You can still be the Son of God. Just be the people's kind of king. Jesus, we can do this. We'll help you. Jesus won't do that. He doesn't need the demons to testify to who he is because his identity doesn't come from hell. It comes from heaven. And so does his mission. Jesus isn't going to give in to the temptation to take the devil's way, the easy way. He's going to take the Father's way, even though it's the hard way. And so Jesus says to the demons, I don't need you to tell everybody who I am or to attempt to sidetrack me from my mission. I have come to die. And nobody and nothing, not even hell itself, can stop me from that. And so demons shut up. And they do. They must, even though these very demons are never far behind Jesus. Have you noticed that as we've made our way through Mark's gospel? That wherever Jesus shows up, so do the demons, so does hell. Did you know that's still true today? Wherever Jesus is working, now get this, wherever Jesus is working, the devil isn't far behind. It's true in your marriage. It's true in your family. It's true at your job. It's even true right here in this church. Satan hates what happened right there in that baptismal tank today. 
He hates it. Wherever God things are happening, hell shows up to disrupt and deter and distract and discouraged. So I say to you, Stay alert. Be vigilant. I say to you this morning, be strong in the Lord. I say to you this morning, take heart, husband and wife. Take heart, parents and children. Take heart, employers and employees. Take heart, church leaders and church members. Take heart. Satan is no match for Jesus. And that's why 1 John 4 verse 14 says, Greater is he who is in you, that's Jesus, than he who is in the world, that's Satan. And Jesus proves that right here in Mark chapter 3. Mark tells us that Jesus shuts up the demons. But did you notice that Mark does leave us kind of hanging a little bit here? Because Mark doesn't tell us whether or not Jesus jumps into the boat that the disciples have brought back for him. Does he? Or do things kind of calm down after Jesus shuts down the demons? We don't know. But we do know this. We do know that the problems don't stop for Jesus. Because after verses 13 through 19 where Jesus calls those 12 guys to be his apostles... He heads back to Capernaum where he encounters family trouble. Verses 20 and 21. Do you notice here the crowds are back? They're back again. There are more people with more diseases and more demons. It's all so much more that Jesus can't even grab a bite to eat. And when word of Jesus' exploding popularity reaches his family back in Nazareth, they come looking for Jesus to save Jesus, get this, from himself. The Greek word here literally means they have come to seize Jesus. This is a good translation in the ESV. To arrest Jesus. To take him home by force where they can get him some help because Jesus has a screw loose. He is out of his mind. He's taking this Son of God thing too far. I mean, we know him better than anybody. We grew up with him. And honestly, this Messiah stuff is getting old. So we're coming to shut Jesus down and to take Jesus home. Now, Of all the problems and pressures that Jesus faces on earth, this one has to cut the deepest. There is something innate within every one of us as humans that longs for and desires and yearns for the love and acceptance of our family. And these are the younger half-brothers and half-sisters Jesus watched over and cared for as the eldest brother. Mary would have told these brothers and sisters about the angel visiting her to inform her that she would give birth to the Messiah and that his name would be Jesus. And then she'd say to them, this is your oldest brother. He is God in the flesh and he lives right here with us. 
But John chapter 7 tells us that his own brothers and sisters refused to believe in him. You say, how could that be? With the Son of God growing up in their own home, at their own dining room table, you know, sleeping in the bedroom next to theirs. How could that be? Well, let me ask you, how would you do living with a perfect brother? Now, I know, I know that some of you think you are the perfect brother or were the perfect brother, but we know better, right? But Jesus is the perfect brother. He never lips off. He never tattles. He never gets even. You can never pin the blame on him. Mom, Mary, Joseph, Dad, listen, Jesus started it. Yeah, whatever, kid. Jesus never started it. Ever. He never disobeyed. And then, you ever think about this? You ever think about that during Jesus' childhood, Jesus never went around saying, hey, don't mess with me, and if you do, I'll zap you with my God power because I'm the Son of God. Jesus never did that. The only time that Jesus talks like he is the Son of God is when he's 12, when he's teaching the scholars in the temple. But that's a one-time thing. You know, as as a kid, Jesus doesn't walk on water in the bathtub. Hey, everybody, come here. Let me show you something. He doesn't walk around healing people. He doesn't disappear and then reappear while playing hide-and-seek at birthday parties. He doesn't miraculously create $100 bills for Mary and Joseph when they can't pay the bills. But now, now all of that has changed. Now, Jesus isn't just doing miracles like he's God. He's actually talking and telling people he is God. And he is. But his siblings don't believe it. Which is why they aren't just embarrassed for Jesus. They're embarrassed. They aren't just embarrassed by Jesus. They're embarrassed for Jesus. So they come to take him home. Listen. Please get this this morning. And for some of you, this, is, this hits home. Listen, Jesus knows how painful it is when family relationships go sideways. He understands when your family labels you a Jesus freak because you're taking this God stuff all so seriously. Jesus knows and Jesus cares and Jesus shows us what to do in the face of family trouble and people pressure and demonic attack. Jesus shows us right here in this text. Do you see how he responds? Do you see what he does? Now, my time is gone, and so you're going to have to come back next week to hear part two. But let me just give you a sneak peek at how Jesus responds to the mounting problems and pressures. Notice here that first, Jesus gets alone time with his Father. It's verse 13. Notice that all these problems, all these pressures, and what does Jesus do? He gets away, he goes up on the mountain, and Luke tells us in Luke 6, verse 12, that Jesus prays. And that he prays, get this, All night, from dusk 
till dawn. Jesus takes all of this to his Father in prayer. And if Jesus, the Son of God, finds it absolutely necessary to respond to the problems of life in prayer, how much more should we find it absolutely necessary? We should follow Jesus up this mountain and go up to our Father in prayer. You know why? Psalm 9, verses 9 and 10, tell us why. Because the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. He's a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name, God, put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. You believe that? Do you know that down deep in your heart, down deep in your soul? Are you convinced That in the problems and pressures of life, the first response is not a last resort. The first response is prayer. Go to God. He is a stronghold in times of trouble. He's a stronghold for the oppressed. In the chaos and the pandemonium of life, God is our mountain. So go to him. Talk to him. Take the problems and pressures to him and talk them out with him because you trust him. He will hear you. He will not forsake you. So take the problems and pressures of life up the mountain to God and talk them out with him just like the son of God. That's not all Jesus does. Secondly, Jesus calls 12 men to be with him. It's verse 14. And notice here that Jesus calls these apostles first to relationship, not just to follow after him, but to do life with him, to be together. Think about this for a minute. Even Jesus, the Son of God, desires human companionship. Jesus chooses 12 men first to be with him, to come alongside of him and to do life together. Jesus chooses here not to face the problems and pressures of life alone, even as the Son of God. And if Jesus needs human companionship as a human, the Son of God, how much more do we? God never intends for you to do life alone. You need people with skin on. People who will come alongside of you. Brothers and sisters in Jesus who will share the load with you. You need people to do for you what Jonathan does for David in the Old Testament. Who comes alongside of David and strengthens his hand in God. And for some of you, your experience with with Christian friends will be much like Jesus' own experience here. You'll You'll be closer to the people who follow him than you are to your own biological family. So I want to say to us as a church, Bethel, let's be that family, a true family, 
especially for those who are estranged from their biological family. Let's be with Jesus together. Let's follow Jesus together. Let's worship Jesus together through the problems and the pressures of life together. Because thirdly, Jesus responds to these pressures and problems by staying true to his mission out of love for you. Do you see, as we've made our way through the first three chapters almost of Mark, do you see how the life Jesus lives on the way to the cross is a reflection of the cross? It's hard. It's difficult. It's painful. The road to the cross is filled with detours and potholes and obstructions. But Jesus will not be stopped. And along the way, look at the compassion he shows to thousands of people who don't come to him because they love him, who don't come to him because they believe that he can, he can solve their sin problem. They're coming to him for what he can do for them now. They're using Jesus. And yet he loves them. He shows compassion to the people who are misunderstanding him. And all of this is proof that Jesus loves you with a love that will not quit on you. Because when the going gets tough, he doesn't quit for you. He perseveres through these problems. He goes to the cross to die for you. And that's something Jesus will have to do alone. There it won't be Jesus and the apostles. There it won't be Jesus and his mother Mary. There on the cross it'll be Jesus and Jesus alone who dies to make us his own. You know what that takes? Every step of the way to the cross and then on the cross, you know what it takes? The greatest love of all. And that's why one of the men that Jesus chose on this mountain on this day would write for us in 1 John 3, verse 16. By this we know love. If Jesus does not persevere through the problems, if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, we don't know love. We can't know love. Jesus is the epitome of love. He is the greatest love of all. And when we see him persevering on the way to the cross and, and on the cross, it is then that we understand and comprehend and know what love is. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Why? Why? To save us from our sins in absorbing the wrath of the Father against our sins. Do you see the love that it took every moment of every day on the way to and upon the cross for Jesus to do what he does? 
Have you trusted him? Have you come to him? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and been saved? Because that's what the Bible says in Acts chapter 16, verse 31. That's how you become a follower of Jesus. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, period. It's not believing plus doing. It's not believing plus giving. It's not believing plus being. It's believing on Jesus because he was everything we were not. He did everything we couldn't and wouldn't. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. And so I conclude this morning with two questions. Number one, would you believe on Jesus? Would you trust in him to save you from your sins right now? And number two, will you trust Jesus in and through the problems and pressures of life? He will be with you. He will help you. He will love you all the way through all of it. And that's why he endures all of it for you. So that even in all the pressures, the people pressures, the demonic attacks, and the family problems, he says, because of who I've made you and what I've done for you, never forget that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen. Father, take your words and root them deep in our hearts. Help us to see Jesus looking to him, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated right now at your right hand. So if you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, can I just ask you, why not? You see the depth of the love Jesus shows you, not just on the cross, but on the way to the cross never sidetracked, never stopped. Would you trust him as the Savior from your sins right now? And Christian, are you doubting his love, his care, his companionship, his help? Are you questioning those things? I say to you this morning, see with fresh eyes and hear with fresh ears the love that endures for you. Trust him. In Jesus' name, amen.